If you have a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me pray, and then, uh, then we'll, we'll get into this. God, thank you for your love. Your love toward us, Lord. Your, how you're just bent on our salvation. How, God, you want us so desperately to be in relationship with you that you sent your only son to die on a cross for our sin. And I know that there's people in here that don't think they have sin or that sin's something just made up or sin's a product of how you were raised and that determines if you're a sin, in sin or not in sin. I pray, God, today that your Holy Spirit would show us sin and that you would show us our need for you. I pray, God, today that the gospel would free our heart from obeying to get or just not obeying and obeying our own lust and flesh. Would the gospel totally free us today to worship and serve and love Jesus? And so, God, we ask this morning that you would anoint my mind and my lips and my heart. I want to handle rightly your word, God. We love you and we look to you, our Savior. Lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, since we started, we've been in the book of, of Mark, and so we're kind of going Old Testament for a while. I think, you know, we've been in the book of Mark now for eight months since we've started, and it's good to get a little bit of Old Testament um, in us as well. And so we're going to be turning there in a second, but first, we've been in Mark's gospel, and what we've been looking at is who Jesus really is. Who is the real Jesus? And in Mark's gospel, everything the disciples needed to learn about the nature and the character of Jesus can only be learned as they follow Jesus. So you couldn't know about Jesus unless you followed him. You couldn't know about him just by word of mouth because it would be wrong. You couldn't know about him by just listening to him teach one time because that would be wrong. And everybody kind of gets it wrong. The only people that are close to getting who Jesus is right are the ones that follow Jesus. Now, I didn't grow up in church. I've, I've shared this several times. I didn't grow up in church. I went to church here and there a couple of times. And I didn't even know, I knew about Christ, but I didn't know Jesus until I started to follow Jesus. And that's what Mark's narrative is about. Everything you needed to learn, you learned as you followed Jesus. So in Mark's narrative, only as Jesus is followed can Jesus be known. And with Jesus, you didn't really know him until you followed him, until you take that step of faith, that faith step, and obey his words, take them seriously, and start to follow. And this is nothing new. This has always been the way that the people of God who've been in relationship with God have walked with God. They walk with God in God's ways. That's Old Testament vernacular. They follow God. They walk in God's ways. They obey God's words. And we talked about this two weeks ago, and one thing that I, I really feel like we should go back and stop and park here for a while is on obedience. Now, when I say obedience, not a lot of you guys get excited. It's not like something in you like, yes, he's going to talk about obedience. This is going to be awesome. I love to obey. Every single rebellious hair on your body stands up. Like, oh my gosh, he's going to tell me what to do now. Been coming to this church for a while, been talking about Jesus all love, and now obey. Okay, what, are we, what do we have to do? I want to talk about obedience because we get this wrong a lot of the times. And this was the issue in Mark chapter 7. If you remember, 
The Pharisees were not obeying God's word. Remember um, Mark chapter 7, verse 5 through 8. We read this two weeks ago. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Hey, why don't your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why don't they obey but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this is Jesus speaking, This people honors me with their lips. They all talk, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave, or you do not obey, the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. One shocking point that we pointed out last couple weeks ago, one shocking point that I don't know if you guys even knew was in this text, is that Jesus took the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament, as the authoritative word of God. He based his whole life on the Bible. His thinking, his actions, even his heart on the Bible. Throughout the Gospels, all of the Gospels, Jesus, his mind is based on the the Old Testament. His will is based on the Bible. And his emotions are even based on the Bible. And Jesus taught that we are to completely obey the Bible. And Jesus is saying, if you fail to honor the unique authority of the Bible, you fail to worship God. And this flies in the face of people who think that they can worship God in their own way. Yes, I don't worship God like you. I worship God in my own way. And Jesus says, if you fail to see and trust in the unique authority of the Bible, you fail to worship God. If you let human traditions, or what your hearts say, or what your emotions say, or what the experts say, have equal authority with the Bible, you fail to worship God. You, in fact, Jesus says, create your own God. Now, I'm not going to be naive and act like you don't have a problem with obedience. I know a lot of us have a problem with obedience. When I say God requires obedience, I know that like does something in you. You're like, okay, what does that even mean? Who is he to tell me what to do? Or maybe you're super religious in here, like these Pharisees, and you give yourself warm fuzzies thinking about how well you obey. Like, oh yes, I obey. I obey everything. And that's why God accepts me. That's why God loves me. I haven't done this or this or this, and that's why God loves me. But here's the question. And we have to deal with this in Mark's gospel right now because the narrative will change in chapter 8. In chapter 8 of Mark, Jesus will turn all his focus and his attention to the cross. He will, there's this shift where he's focused and going to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, he says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. You have to die, you have to obey, and you have to follow me. So it's very important that we deal with this idea of obedience. Why does God require that we obey? Now, I want to go to the front of the Bible to answer this question. So I had you turn to Deuteronomy. So hopefully you're there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Look at verse 20. Deuteronomy 6, 20. Now Deuteronomy was a sermon preached by Moses after or right before he died. And he was urging Israel's faithful obedience to the covenant laws given to them 40 years previously. Now, if you don't have any um, Bible background, if you didn't grow up in church, 
you're probably only, your only reference is the Prince of Egypt uh, cartoon, and that's totally okay. Forty years prior to Deuteronomy being written, the exodus of Egypt happened. They all left Egypt. They're out in the wilderness. They send 12 spies to go in. Ten of them come back saying there's giants in the land. Two of them come back, Joshua and Caleb. No, we could take this. Our God is for us, not against us. Let's go in and take the land that God has promised us. Ten spies are disobedient and gets everyone else disobedient, and they fail to enter in. That generation dies off. Now this new generation is about to enter in. After this whole generation dies off, Moses himself won't even get to go into the promised land. And so he writes a sermon. He writes a sermon to remind them of what God has done to this new and next generation of people. Moses doesn't just preach that obedience was the way to get into the land. He actually says throughout Deuteronomy that obedience was the way to stay in and stay fruitful in the land. Look at verse 20. And then he says this. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded to us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, when, when the sons came to the fathers, when they would get into the promised land, and they would ask, just like you and I would ask, to our dads or our parents who obeyed all these laws that God set out, like, Dad, and they're walking whatever, they're walking to go get food or, or, or they're, they're sitting in the living room or whatever, and they realize that Dad is doing all these things that God has prescribed, and then something comes up, maybe at 12 years old, maybe 11, 10, like, why are we doing these things? Why do, you, why do we follow these laws that God gives us? Dad, why do we obey God? What's the heart's motivation behind obedience? Why obey God? And so when these sons ask their dads, Dad, why do we obey God? Why do we obey the commands of God? The Jewish dad wasn't supposed to say something like this because God said so, son. So shut up and just do it. He wasn't supposed to say that. That was true. God did say so. But that's not what he was supposed to say. He wasn't supposed to say because we're Jewish. And this is what makes us Jewish. We hold to these laws, and that's what sets us apart. We are lights in a dark world, son. We have to obey to be lights in a dark world. He didn't say that, but that was true as well. He wasn't supposed to say, because that's what my dad told me, and that's what I'm telling you, and it just keeps on going. You tell your son one day the same thing, though that was true. They weren't supposed to say, well, it makes us look good in the community. When we live in this community, it makes us look good that we obey God. And he didn't say it makes us look different from this pagan world around us. This world's pagan, and we obey God, that's why. What they were to say to their sons was this. They were to look their son in the eye, in the eyes when dad said, when their son said, dad, why do we obey? 
And dad was supposed to look at the son and say, we obey, son, because we were in bondage. We were slaves. And with a mighty hand, God freed us from bondage and redeemed us out of slavery. We obey because we were slaves and God freed us. And then naturally, what would come next? Why? Why did God save us, dad? Because we were good? Because he needed us? Because we're Jewish? Is that why God saved us? Two chapters before that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, he brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. Why did God bring us out of Egypt, Dad? Because he loves us, son. Why do we obey, Dad? Why do we obey God? Because we were slaves and he saved us. Why did he save us? Save us because he loves us. That's what they were to say. And it's vital that you realize that Israel was saved out of bondage by no merit of their own doing. It was a free gift of God. See, but God doesn't treat people like lifeless robots either. God wasn't like, hey, I'm going to save you. You, can have, you have no say in it. I'm just going to do it all. You're going to do nothing. God doesn't do that either. If you remember from the Prince of Egypt movie, just assuming that you have not read Exodus, or the book of Exodus if you've read it, you remember the context. The night before they were to be delivered from Egypt, God tells them, to slaughter a lamb, take the blood and put it on the doorpost to avoid the plague of death. Right now, since we've been in the book of Mark, your Jesus detection light should be coming on right now. It should be going ding, ding, ding. Wait, wait, wait. Isn't Jesus the lamb of God? Isn't his blood over our lives that we would be passed over? Doesn't he die to set us free that we would never die? This is the gospel in the Old Testament. They were saved by grace and not by works. The Ten Commandments, the law of God, was given to Israel after they were saved. You have to understand this. They weren't like, okay, Israelites, obey and I'll save you. They were completely saved by God's right, strong hand. And then after that, once they were saved and delivered, he gave them the law. The law came after salvation. That's important. This message is from Genesis to Revelation that God saves people and frees people by grace. So, if you're in here and you're thinking, well, this church makes me obey in order for me to get in, that's a lie from hell. You and I do not obey to be saved. We obey because we are saved. And this is what Israel, this is what Moses pointed them to. Why do we obey? Because God saved us. Because he's the only one that can save us. He's the only one that can free our hearts. In the Exodus account, we see the gospel. Now back to this issue of obedience. Then why do we obey? Why do we obey God? Why do we read the Bible and actually obey it? Because of the gospel. You were slaves. You were in bondage. You have been saved. You have been delivered. We have been saved. Now, 
if, you're, if you've not been saved by Jesus, if you've not been freed, if you've not repented from your sins and turned to Christ and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, we are not, this church is not making you or this city adhere to what the Bible teaches. If that was the case, it would breed religion. It would breed religiosity. It would mean, do you want to be in? Then obey the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says, do you want to be in? Believe in Christ. And once you believe in Christ, it frees our heart and gives us a power to then obey. So if you're not, do not think that this church or the Bible puts some trip on you that you have to do this and this and this in order to be human, in order to be saved. The Bible says, believe in Christ for your salvation. And it gives you the power to free your heart from idols, to free your heart from sin, to free your heart, to see your now your, your self-image is in Christ, and then we can obey. We only obey because Christ has saved us. We obey because Christ has saved us. We don't obey to be saved. We don't obey to be right. Christ saves us first, and then we obey. This is important. This is important to get right. In the Exodus narrative, God showed himself as the only one who can save from bondage. He's the only one that could save from difficult situations. The only one who could save from the armies bigger and faster than they were. The only one who can save from death. Have we not been learning that in the book of Mark about Jesus? Wasn't that whole scene as we saw a couple of weeks ago, or actually a month ago now, where Jesus, Jesus delivers them from a storm that was threatening their lives? When Jesus saved that demoniac that was like naked in chains and like a legion of demons was in him and Jesus just said a word and he was released from the, just the demonic oppression. And then Jesus healed that bleeding woman who was like in her whole life just plagued by death. And that Jesus raised that little girl by saying, little girl, it's time to get up now and eat breakfast. He raises her from death. You see, Jesus is the only one, our only true Savior. And this is what is been taught, being taught in the Exodus narrative. Only God can save you. He's the only one who can really save you. Notice that those two passages that we read from Deuteronomy, chapter 4 and chapter 6, Moses was reminding them how God saved them. How did God save them? Who, if you've read Exodus, you know how God saves them. He saves them with the mighty hand. God was very intentional on how he saved Israel here. God, in his sovereignty, allowed a scene to be set that would bring him the most glory. Do you remember the burning bush? Moses meets God in the burning bush. The bush is not consumed. God tells Moses to take off his sandals. Moses does. God says, my people are slaves in Egypt. I want you to deliver them. He says, who are you? God says, I am. We talked about that a couple weeks ago as well. And so God goes to Moses and then Moses is called to go to Pharaoh. So Moses then goes down, goes to Pharaoh and goes, hey, let my people go. God said, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh do? Nope. And then Pharaoh goes to the taskmasters. Hey, these, um, these, these Jews kind of want free, so why don't you make them work harder? So the taskmasters go to the slaves, these Jewish slaves, and make them work harder. They get angry. So they go to the taskmasters. They're like, what are you doing to us? And they say, well, your man, your man Moses is saying that you need to be free, and we're not freeing you. So the people go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh goes, it's Moses, not me. 
If you, he's saying that you, you guys have it easy, that you guys want to be free, I'll show you what hard work is. So the people then go to Moses. Moses, what are you doing? Who asked you to stir up the pot? Let everything be. And then Moses goes to God. God, what are you doing? Why would you have me go to Pharaoh when they only causes them to work harder? And this was the perfect setup. Now everybody knows what's going on. All this tension is now building. Everybody knows. The taskmasters know. Pharaoh knows. The people know. Everybody knows. God wants them to be free, but Pharaoh won't let them go. And what God does here is beautiful. And this is what happens in our life as well. When we look around, all we see is defeat. Everything around us is just defeat, defeat, defeat. Maybe you've, sometimes you go through seasons of defeat where nothing seems to fall in place ever. What God loves to do, Isaiah chapter 45 says, truly you are God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. God loves to hide victory in defeat. God loves to hide victory in defeat, strength in weakness. When anyone from the whole circle saw what was happening, it looked like Moses lost, Pharaoh won, and the people of God were paying for it. And this was, was this not exactly what happened at the cross? What looked like defeat of the greatest rabbi to ever walk in Israel? Mocking and beating of an innocent man was actually the victory of God over sin, death, and Satan. God hiding victory in defeat. And so in Exodus chapter 6, it says, The Lord says to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he sent them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And what God was doing was hiding in the oppression and the slavery of his people and the pride of Pharaoh, one of the greatest redemptive stories ever told. God redeemed these people. And he redeemed them through ten plagues. You guys remember the ten plagues? The first one, Nile, turned to blood. The second one is a little bit of comic relief because Moses makes frogs, and there's frogs everywhere, and the magicians are like, we could do that too. And they make more frogs. They're like, that's not helping at all. Um, we need you to take them away, not add to the frog problem. And then there's lice, and then fleas, and then dead livestock, and then boils, and then hail, and locust darkness, and then finally death. And the Exodus narrative calls this the mighty hand of God. And every one of these plagues was a tr strategic affront to the false idols of Egypt. The plagues fall in areas of life supposedly protected by Egypt's gods. And God was demonstrating his power over these things, over the mightiest nation against one of the most oppressed nations. And you can say that God was making a public spectacle of Egypt and their false gods like he did at the cross. And when Colossians, it says in chapter two, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them. Now, when you finally get to the 10 commandments, that's a little snapshot of what happened. When you finally get to the 10 commandments, the big 10, okay, the most important ones, in chapter five of Deuteronomy, What's the context of the commands of God? Why does God say, hey, obey me? I want you to follow my law. I want you to follow my ways. What is the context of obedience? What is the context for obeying God? 
Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 7 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the Ten Commandments start. Listen to that. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. I am the only one who can save you. I'm the only one who can do what you ask to, for, to be free. I'm the only one who can do that. Therefore, in that context, obey. See, the, the, the context of everything, salvation and redemption, was the context of obedience to God. We obey God because we've been saved. We obey God because we've been redeemed. Throughout the Exodus narrative, who can save from bondage and slavery? Only God. Who, could, who is more powerful than the gods of Egypt? Only God. Who can save from the most powerful enemy? God. Who can save you from a giant ocean and an oncoming army? God. Who can give you water from a rock or make it snow bread every morning? God. And this is why idolatry is such an affront to God. This is when you and I, when we don't obey God, when we've been saved, why it's such an affront to God. What we're basically saying is, I know what's best for my life, God. God's like, no, I created you and I've saved you. I know what's best for your life because I am the God who sees, who sees 20, 50, infinity down the line. I'm the God who's made you and created you. Idolatry is making something of more worth than God and looking to it as your functional savior. Like, save me. And so Deuteronomy chapter five, the 10 commandments. Martin Luther said that you, can break, you can't break any of the 10 commandments without first breaking commandment one. You have to go through, through the first commandment to get to the, all the rest of the commandments. So anything that you break, any commandment, any law that we break, we actually are breaking the first one, which is to love the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. So, you can't bow down to an image or break the Sabbath or disobey your parents or murder or commit sexual immorality or steal or lie or covet unless you first made something other than God your God. Now, why would someone not rest on the Sabbath? Like, Sabbath is coming, I know I should rest. Not being legalistic about the day, but I know I should rest. I've been working a, a, a long week. I know I should rest and wait on God, but no, I can't. Because work and money have become your God. You're saved by that. That is your functional savior. God of heaven can't possibly take care of me. I gotta take care of myself. Jesus would even say, you cannot serve both God and money. Why would you commit adultery or sexual immorality? Because you've made an idol out of sex or maybe romance and you believe it will save you from loneliness or meaninglessness. Why would you lie because the approval of other people is more important to you than the approval of God. So you wouldn't lie or cheat or be sexually immoral or ignore the Sabbath unless you were, unless you were making something other than God more important to you and more some, something more fundamental to your meaning and your happiness than God. And an idol becomes your personal, functional savior. Everybody does this. Imagine a personal hell. Like I have this personal hell. And what this personal hell is, is loneliness. And you do everything to avoid that hell. Or singleness, or meaninglessness, or joblessness, or whatever it is. 
That's your personal hell, and you do everything to save you from that personal hell. We make idols today out of status and stuff and happiness and sex, and these idols are our functional, personal saviors keeping us from our personal hell. Martin Luther also said that our hearts are like idol factories. We can continue to produce these idols, and these idols have our heart, and they have our affection, and we sacrifice to them, and we serve them with our time and our money and our attention, but they can't save us. They are insufficient to handle the weight of a human soul. They can't deliver a human life. And here's the real kicker. Obedience can't save you either. You can't obey to be saved. You can't adhere to all of the Ten Commandments and still be saved. Number one, because it's impossible. The Sermon on the Mount totally blew that out of the water. Why? I've, I've never um, committed adultery. Have you looked with, uh, at a woman with lust? Um, I don't know broken. So Jesus really does a number on that one. So no one's free. It's impossible for one, for two, because you, you wouldn't need God if you held to all the rules and laws. You wouldn't even need a Savior. And this was the problem of the Pharisees, going back to Mark. This was the problem with the Pharisees. If you're trying to obey to be saved, it will never work. It just breeds religiosity. It just breeds God owes me. In Luke chapter 18, in Luke chapter 18, you get this picture. We read this a couple weeks ago. You get this picture of the difference between someone who needs to be saved and someone who thinks, I obey, therefore I am saved. Let me read it to you. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. And Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, this is the Pharisee praying, God, thank you that I am not like other men, those extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector next to me. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector Um, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to this house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus, there's two men. There was a Pharisee that obeyed all the rules that did everything right, that obeyed not because he's been saved, but obeyed so he can avoid being saved, obeyed because he had no need of a savior. And he goes to God and he prays like this, not even a, not even a prayer really. He was just bragging. He came to God with a resume. God, this is who I am. I fast, I recycle, I tithe everything, I give to the poor, I serve at a, at a nonprofit on the weekends. I do everything well. I'm not prejudiced or biased. I'm perfect. And we do this, we could do this in San Francisco easily. And we can do this as a religious Pharisee that lives in Southern California just as easy. We can both do this. We can go to God and go, God, look at what I do. This is what I do. I obey this way and this way and this way and this way. Look at me. 
Or we could be like this tax collector who is totally aware of God, aware of himself, knowing that he was a sinner, and it says that he couldn't even lift his head. But he beat his chest saying, God, forgive me, a sinner. If you're trying to obey to be saved, it won't work. If you go to God with a resume of things that you've done, in the church, out of the church, on the weekends, volunteering, where you work, whatever, to truly see obedience rightly, you have to declare bankruptcy. You have to declare you can't make good on your debts. You have to go to God bankrupt. You have to say to God, forgive me, God, a sinner, and repent of even the good things that we do. Repent of everything. Forgive me, I'm fully aware of my own need for you, God. Forgive me, a sinner. It means complete absence of pride when we go to God. A complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It's this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. And only then, only then are we justified. Only then can, we, can God be the lifter of our head and forgive us of our sin. And then once we're forgiven, we begin to see obedience as something beautiful. We must see obedience in the context of salvation. If we don't see obedience in the context of salvation, our hearts will get religious. We will get bitter. Obedience is the way our hearts and our will proclaim the Lord is my salvation in whom I trust. Not what my hands have done, but what Christ has done. If you don't get obedience at all, if you grew up in church, like one of the hardest things for me to do is really obey from my heart. Where it starts is repentance. Or if you're like, I'm, I'm running from God. I'm tired of people telling me what to do. I'm my own savior. I obey my heart. I obey my emotions. I'm true to myself. Repent. That will never, ever save you. You know in your quietest moments, you can't quite get there. You even, you even rebel against yourself. We need a savior. And once we, we are saved, our hearts are freed to really and truly obey God. To where we're not just honoring God with our lips, but we're honoring God with our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, God, I pray that the, that, that thing that happens in our hearts where we, just, we get so rebellious and we get so... Um, kind of prideful, whether it's this religious pride or this irreligious pride, I pray, God, that we would go to you bankrupt. We have a debt of sin that we cannot pay. We're fully aware of our need for you, God. Lord, I'm fully aware of my need for you. I think the longer that we walk with you, the more we understand our need for you. 
I pray that you would make obedience something that's so sweet in this church, God, and repent is something that's so sweet that we obey God because you saved us. So when people ask why we obey God, because I was a slave and I've been set free by Jesus. I ask you, God, those that are not walking with you aren't following you. I pray they wouldn't feel some religious trip to have to be a certain way. Free their hearts, God. Show them their need for you. In Jesus' name, amen.